33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Thank you, Tanner. Good morning. It is a beautiful day out there. And it's beautiful in here. It's good to be together with you. We had some energetic singing today. It felt like, to me at least, there was some energy in the air. We might finally be over the uh, spring forward hour loss that we suffered there. That was brutal for a preacher that morning. Tell you what, but uh, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that you are in, in good enough health to be here. Mindful of those who are unable to be here for various reasons, we pray. Mindful of the presence of Christ among us, we partake of the Lord's Supper. And Rodney, you're right, with that collection plate, we cannot give a, even a small portion of what we've been blessed with back. But it is a, a great test passing that collection plate, and that is something we're going to talk about today. That is a test when that plate comes around. It makes you think. Uh, it makes you uh, look inside sometimes and, and ask yourself uh, uh, if it's difficult uh, to give back to God. Uh, and you ask yourself, I don't know, I do all my whole life, I've asked myself, is this the right amount? Maybe you're like me, I, I think about that stuff all the time, but you really just can't put a a monetary amount on the value that we uh, can give back to God of our hearts. And so it's, it's a test of sorts. It helps us to, to look inside. We're going to talk about that today. It is a day that we are going to focus on Deuteronomy 8. So normally we preach, we've been preaching ahead on the readings coming up. But boy, when you get into the first part of Deuteronomy, that's really hard to do and just leave a bunch of stuff. And so uh, over the next few weeks, I'm going to give as much treatment as I can to the book of Deuteronomy because of its great import uh, and its place. Uh, not only do we have Moses going over the law with a new generation of people, but he's giving reasons why God is doing the things that he's doing. And he just tells them, this is why this has happened. This is why you're doing this. This is why this is expected of you. And it's rich in that way. And so... We, reading it, seeing in this uh, our own wilderness journey, I don't think it's a secret that uh, this wilderness wandering in the Bible reflects or foreshadows the Christian walk. Look at the songs that we sang this morning. Just a handful of the songs that are in our songbook are about walking through this journey in the wilderness on our way to the promised land. Have you ever noticed how many are about that? These are just a few of the highlights of those things. Just a few highlights, the big points, if you will. And then there's a lot of nitty-gritty detail, uh, such as what we're going to deal with today, I think, is one of those details I'd like to dive into. Just couldn't leave it behind to press on today. So it's not really a secret. To, to Canaan's land, I'm on my way. On Jordan's stormy banks, banks I stand and cast a wishful eye. I'm marching on to Zion, uh, marching upward, the song says. Uh, as we travel through this pilgrim land toward the setting of the sun, all these songs. You know what's really hard? Not thinking about the promised land part of that, the Zion and the 
Canaan's land. What's really hard is the marching on part, the traveling part, the uh, on my way part, right? These are the difficulties, the stormy banks, the stormy banks of Jordan. Can I make it? Can I cross over into that land? Am I going to make it to heaven? That's a great question, isn't it? I think it's important this morning to take a break from some storytelling that we've been doing and look at some strategy that our God employs as He's leading us through this life. You would expect perhaps that none other than Jesus Christ would exemplify how to go back into the Old Testament and take principles and lessons that are taught there and apply them to his life. And he did that in a great way. Just like Paul said, these things that were written before were written for our learning, Romans 15, 5. Jesus, when he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, for how long? 40 days. Isn't that interesting? For 40 days. 40 days of fasting. He was met by the devil out there. He was tempted. Toward the end, when the devil thought he would probably be at his weak point, he was met with, if you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And Jesus replied with Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When he took the Lord into Jerusalem and took him up to a high pinnacle of the temple and had him to look out all over the kingdoms that, that were visible uh, in that land and representative really of every direction toward the, toward the outermost parts of the world. He said, I'll give you all these if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus replied with Deuteronomy 6, 16. It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when Satan promised him all the kingdoms of the world, if he'd fall down and worship him, uh, Jesus pronounced his loyalty to the kingdom of heaven in Deuteronomy 6, 13, and said, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord God, and Him only you shall serve. So he went to Deuteronomy 8, 3, Deuteronomy 6, 16, and Deuteronomy 6, 13. Isn't that interesting? And he stood and he repelled Satan from his presence with that Scripture, with going back and, and applying these same principles. I think it is warranted for us in following the example of Christ to be able to go back to those Scriptures like this and use these things to apply them to our walk. I want to wind up in the same place Jesus did, don't you? That's where He leads. Where He leads, I'll follow. Blessed Jesus, hold my hand. He's, he's in heaven at the right hand of, of God the Father. And so if you want to go there, follow Him. Now, following Him entails submitting to His leadership and His leadership style. Anthony last week spoke that only those with hearts of valor entered in the land. Not those who were just armed, not just because they were mighty or they were favored or they were righteous. 
the ones who had hearts of valor, that were willing to listen to God and follow Him wherever He led. This takes more than just coming in and out of the church building. <laughs> it takes more than putting some money in a collection plate. There's no other way around the fact that our utmost obedience, our utmost faith is required, courageous faith, to follow Jesus through our journey home. And so there's some things that we ought to know about this. And when you became a Christian and you confessed Him as your Lord, that did mean that you would let Him have the authority in your life to make decisions that are best for you as a loving father. You gave Him fatherly, parental authority to do that. So it's important that we see what it looks like when it happens. I know my children, unless I communicate to them why I'm doing things, explain to them what I'm trying to accomplish, sometimes they do not understand. Uh, they just see something in the moment. They think that it might be unfair sometimes. They think that I might be harsh sometimes. I never get accused of being too lenient. But unless I explain what I'm trying to cultivate in them, it might be passed off as just, I'm in a mood this day. I'm just in a certain mood, something's wrong with me. And, but it's set in a context then of, of seeing a greater picture. And this is what God is doing with these people as He leads them through the wilderness. He's committed, first of all, look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Everything's going to come right out of here pretty much for at least a little bit. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. God was committed to them all the way. Now, it was He who determined that they would wander for 40 years. You might think that at a time like this, God would say, I'll be back in 40 years, and if you're humble, I'll take you from there and we'll try it again. That might be the way sometimes people do things. But that's not the way God does it. He says, I led you all the way. When I issued that disciplinary action, punitive to some, I walked with you through it. That's one of the most difficult things also, I might add, as I'm thinking about this, about parenting. That when you discipline children, you're in it with them. Sometimes it involves you having to discipline yourself. And, and, and sacrifice something yourself to, to carry out a point. And God went with them through this time. He never left them. Many of the years it says they were encamped in Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. And He was there this whole time patiently cultivating the hearts, maybe not of this generation that He spoke to, 
those 20-year-old and, and above uh, armed men who were to wander until they all passed away in that wilderness. But maybe He was cultivating in the others who would listen. Maybe the women, the younger children, the old men and women during this time. What they would need before they went in to do that which that generation would, would refuse to do. The Hebrew letter in the New Testament, exhorts Christians to be content with what they have. For he himself has said, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, his rod and his staff, they comfort me. He's there in that valley with me. And He's there when I reach the peaks of the mountains. I'll never leave you. And the reason I think that we feel sometimes that God has left us is just that. It feels like God has left sometimes when we're in a dark valley of death. When we're in the shadows. When things aren't going well. I feel like, where is God? He seemed present the other day, I know that feeling. You probably know that feeling as well. But he's patient and he's there to bless when things are good or bad. And to bring us blessing in times of difficulty and to bring us back to reality and remind us that we're not invincible. He leads also with great detail. Look at verse... One, be careful, be careful to observe every commandment. Look at these words, all-inclusive. This reminds me of Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus said, Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And Paul, the apostle, five times in the New Testament, told the people, like Timothy, for example, to be careful to follow the doctrine. And 14 times in the New Testament, the word diligence is used in relation to obedience. Be diligent about this. Heaven is not a place that you just stumble into, that you just get lucky and you just, just you make it in by the, you know, the skin of your teeth, as they say. It's not some, something that you just slop into. Heaven is for people who are intentional about going there. That's why it's a reward. That's why it's a reward. It's for those who want it. And God will lead you all the way there. God will, in order to accomplish this leading, all the way home, He will test the heart. And there's three things in these next uh, few verses. Verse 2 still, and then verse 3, and then verse 5 I want to point out. Look at this with me in your Bibles. Maybe make a note of it if you would, and go back and look at it again later. In verse 2, he says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way, these 40 years in the wilderness, to humble you and test you. Why? Well, to humble you. But why test? What's the testing? How is he humbling? What's he trying to bring about? First of all, he says, To know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. That He may know your heart. Notice, 
in following verses, you'll see that He allowed them to hunger. He allowed them to thirst before He fed them and watered them. And I think that lesson on complaining a few weeks ago that I did is directly related to this idea that we, when we complain, are not going to the Lord for answers. And we're not waiting patiently for Him because when they went to Him, albeit in complaining format, God responded. But He learned something about their hearts that day. They went and, and begrudged Moses and, and complained against God rather than, than uh, presenting themselves to Him and saying, we need food. Is this awesome God able to feed us? That's the environment I think God was most willing and happy to work in. Ask me and you'll receive, right? Familiar verse, isn't it? Ask and you'll receive. And so he learned some things about their heart. And I think that in relation to that complaining lesson we learned from the book of Numbers in particular, verses 11 through 15, or chapters 11 through 15 in Numbers, all those complaints that... He wants to see whether we'll complain or whether we'll pray to Him. Job did a little bit of both, but I think because Job was taking it to God and demanding answers and waiting patiently for what appears to be months for answers that God said, He's not sinning with His lips. He's suffering. I understand suffering. It's the faithless complaining that I'm trying to purge out of you. And so, he wants to know what's in our heart, and therefore, I mentioned a little while ago the collection plate. Sometimes we can learn what's in our heart by these things. Here's a test. Give in proportion to your income. That's the New Testament command. Well, I, you know, I would know whether I'd pass the test or not if he said, give $20 a week. Then I'll just know. God, that's easier, because I'll just know. Now, it might be a lot for, for me or someone, but at least I'll know that's what i got to come up with. What's in your heart? Give in proportion to that, as each one determines. From his income, just from your generosity. It's a test. That's one of these things along the journey that God does, I believe, to get us to look inside like He was doing here. That He may know our hearts, and then secondly, look at verse 3. So He humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor your did your fathers know. This new thing that they called what, that's what manna means in Hebrew, what, what whatever. There's a candy bar today called whatchamacallit. It's because if you tried to describe what's in it, you really can't. And if you read the nutritional label, you still couldn't describe what's in it. So you probably ought not to eat one. But whatever, nobody had ever seen this before, but I gave you this manna that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. That He might make you know what's in your heart. When we are without, that is definitely a test because we have to ask, am I going to generate my needs from my own hands? As later in the chapter he says, by my power and the might of my hand have I gained this wealth, verse 17? 
Or do I need to rely on God here? And he's cultivating reliance, dependence for our survival, our sustenance. The word live in this context, the first time it's used means that you might be sustained. Go in and be sustained in the land. This is that you will not live abundantly by bread on the table. This isn't the abundant life that Jesus talked about in John chapter 10 either. That you just might live by bread alone. You go out and you make money. You buy some material wealth. You feel pretty comfortable. I'm living now. He's saying to them and He said to us, you're not living abundantly if your spirit is troubled. I've talked with several younger people recently and a recurring theme has come about. It was beautiful. A couple times I heard, I'm used to being able to fix things. If I'm falling short in grades, I can fix that. I know what to do to fix it. If I'm falling short um, in my physical training, I know what I need to do to fix that. He said, but my spirit, I can't control it. I just can't control it. And I said, oh, that's beautiful. You're right where God wants you to be. You're right where God wants you to be. That you may know that you cannot live and your spirit cannot thrive nor be saved by bread alone. That's what He wants us to know. Finally there in verse 5, let's read on through 4 and 5. Live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your garments didn't wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. So you should know something about me, basically, is what he's saying. You should know this in your heart because so many of you have children and you chasten them out of love that if I'm chastening you, I love you. You should know this about me. And so these tests bring about a lot of understanding, don't they? God learns about us, we learn about us, and we learn about God. Now, as a side note, there's a good question to ask at this time. What's the difference between God testing and Satan tempting? You ever wondered that? Because when you face a trial in your life, I've heard some people when something happens say, this is Satan doing this. I've heard other people say, the Lord's testing me. Well, I just, I don't know. I'm not sure they know either. Job didn't know. He had no idea what was going on. None. He didn't know that God and Satan had a conversation about him. And I think he was being both tested and tempted at the same time, in the same occurrences. What's the difference? I put it up here before you, not to belabor this point, but just to throw it out there as I understand this is a question that's, that's important. Motive is the difference, and outcome is the difference. Satan tempts men to separate them from God. Sin separates, Isaiah said. Your sins separate you from your God. So when Satan's tempting you, he is, is angry, he is hateful, he wants the pinnacle of God's creation to turn and hate him just like he does. And that's the outcome he wants is eternal separation. Bow down and worship me, Jesus, and I'll give you all these. You know what that means. The minute Jesus would have bowed down to him, he'd have been eternally separated from his own Father in heaven. He wants to separate, but God, when he tests men, like he says here in verse 5, you should know in your heart, as a father chastens his children, so I chasten and discipline, if you will, and test. I'm using the simplest form of the word, test. I test you. 
to bring about good. Look at verse 16 in this same chapter. The latter part of it, that He might humble you and that He might test you. And in this verse He adds, to do you good in the end. Do you see that? That's the difference. Now, I don't know which that is. All I know is that God has instructed me that when you face hardships, you're to handle them in a certain way. James wrote in his epistle to count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kinds. Various kinds. Some you might think sound, seem like they're from Satan. Some may seem like they're from God. But he said, count it all joy because you have an opportunity to show God that you love Him and that you're going to stick with Him. And when He's leading you through this journey and He's not going anywhere, you're not going anywhere either. That's why it can be a joy because He's going to bring you through it out the other side of that dark, long tunnel to do you good in the end. You say, well, what about people who've died for their faith? Well, that's a good question too. Except that tunnel may lead through the point of death. But where, where is the other side? To those who confess Him, even to the point of death, Revelation 2.10. If I died confessing my faith in Jesus Christ, that's not a bad way to go, eternally speaking. But we're so temporal sometimes we say, oh, isn't that awful? It is, I understand it is. But not necessarily spiritually speaking, not eternally speaking. And so God doesn't see that as, as a hindrance to faith, really an opportunity to demonstrate as He did by giving His own Son for us how much He loved us that we would give our own selves for Him. I think there's no questions to be asked after that. What else could God ask of you but to give your own life? Well, so I chased that rabbit with you today. Finally, He aids us on our journey. He aids us. I chose that term specifically because that's the New King James translation in Hebrews chapters 2 and 4, that He is able to aid us, to help us, to supply us. When we are to pray and uh, with supplications, that's the idea, Supply us with what we need for this journey. Give us aid. We use that term when we're talking about disasters that happen around, humanitarily speaking. We give human aid or aid to people uh, that are suffering through. And wouldn't you know that's the term that the Hebrew writer gave to us to use. There's two miraculous elements uh, to this journey that requires some aid. First of all, this is my longest journey right here that I have ever taken. And we, me and my son, had to stop and get new shoes. After uh, a month, he did. I was out because my feet are on the right. I was out of that month-long, three-month-long journey thing. Those are my feet after six days of hiking. And when you look at verse 4, your garments didn't wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years after that, I laughed. I said, I can relate to that now. That's six days. It doesn't matter how good a shape I could have got in either or how, what I was eating. That's a miraculous leading. That's intervention there. And what that suggests to me is that God will go to whatever lengths He needs to to lead us through this life on into heaven. I do not believe that God is 
going to work miracles before your eyes. I think the Apostle Paul dealt with that and explained to us that this form of miracles for the sake of producing faith has passed away with that apostolic group and apostolic teaching. I believe that. And yet, I've seen the finger of God and the hand of God all through my life. I've seen it in your lives. And we cannot deny that He is there providentially supplying us with things that we can only shake our head about, that we can only smile about, and we can only wonder about. How, was, was God behind He had to be behind that. This wouldn't have happened had God not been on my side. These are the types of things where I believe His presence is very known to us. But even if it weren't, He promised that He would. And that's good enough for me right there. I believe it. I believe He's with me. I believe He's not going to leave me. I believe He'll supply my needs for this journey. Whether He comes down and zaps something supernaturally in front of my eyes or not. He's going to do that. He's going to lead me home all the way. Let's finish with the book of Hebrews. There's some powerful uh, verses here in chapter 2 about him supplying aid. So let's leave Deuteronomy now and take a walk on through to the other side of the Scriptures and come to Hebrews chapter 2. I'll read a couple texts to you and let the lesson be yours. In Hebrews 2 verse 16 beginning, 16 to 18. For indeed He, that is Christ, does not give aid to angels, but He does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, He had to be made like His brethren, that's us, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that He Himself has suffered, being tempted... He is able to aid those who are tempted. What's that song? He understands. My Jesus knows. He understands because He cares. Come out of here, out of this verse. Look at chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. The last three verses also of chapter 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. A high priest is a mediator, the greatest mediator that men had in the Old Covenant. Now He is our High Priest. He's passed through the heavens, He says here, gone through the veil back into the most holy places, the idea. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a High Priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want to encourage you not to despise the chastening of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, 6, and 7. As the text up here before you says, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. That's a good thing. Because sons inherit promises, riches, and wealth. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless. Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The gospel comes into play in that. Since I believe that Jesus Christ came and tasted life and said, 
he now considers us brethren because he was a man too once. That after his burial, when he raised from the dead, that he has the power to overcome death, which is the worst thing that can happen to you and me. He is alive to do the leading, and he's present as deity among us to lead us all the way. That's how the gospel relates to this. When you say, I believe in the gospel, you're believing in a living, risen Savior who is empowering you, if you so choose, to walk all the way home with Him. Just don't forget the part about the tests. Pass those tests. See things spiritually. Set your, things on minds, on, uh, your mind on things above. And don't despise the chastening of the Lord, for He loves you when He does that. If you need to respond to that gospel message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you too can die to your sins, be buried in a watery grave, and be raised again to begin your journey all the way home. Let's stand and sing this song.